Hey Morgan, what's going on? Well, before we start the show, we have a brief announcement to make. We are starting a companion series to Foss and Crafts where we can, quite literally, make things together. Ooh, so um, I think I remember us talking about this, but let's see if I get it right. Um, So Hack and Craft is going to be a monthly virtual meetup kind of thing that falls between somewhere like a user group and a stitch and bitch. Ooh, what? Can we define that? Uh, Stitch and Bitch is typically where people gather around and they all bring some sort of fiber arts project, so knitting or crocheting or spinning or something along those lines, and then they just kind of talk and have a community group while they make things. So we're expanding it beyond just textile things in this case, so really kind of any kind of crafting, which includes... Hacking. We're considering hacking a kind of crafting. Yeah, if you recall back to the first episode of this show, we broadly defined crafts to include most creative endeavors. Yeah, so um, basically it sounds like show up if you have something you want to work on, work on that while talking with people. And we're kind of figuring this out, so I think this first time we're going to be just encouraging people to make stuff while we kind of talk about things Mm -hmm. in the future maybe we'll record some of them maybe sometimes people will present but i think the majority of it's going to be focused on socialization yeah and we might sometimes have like a theme for the month or something like that that we talk about in an unstructured discussion yeah so um When is this going to happen? It's currently June 12th when I'm recording this and when we're putting out this episode. And the first half, Hacking Craft, will take place on June 19th, 2021 at UTC 1500. So uh, see our website for more information. All right, great. Um, So I guess let's start that episode then. Yeah. I guess I didn't need to say that. No. It's recording. Well, you're supposed to do the Foss and Crafts intro. Oh, okay. Hello, welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, Morgan. And my co-host, Chris. This episode, we're bringing you a live presentation that we gave in May at OzgerCon, a Turkish free software conference. We'd like to thank Nesli Hanturan and the other organizers of the conference for inviting us to speak and for allowing us to record this as a podcast episode. Yeah, that that uh, the conference was really incredible. I really didn't know what to expect, and uh, Nesli Han was a really, really great host. I, I wish we had been able to make it to the whole thing, but it was really great. Yeah, thank you for having us. Um, So this is the first live episode that we're releasing. We do have a previous live episode that we did a recording of in December 2020. We hope to eventually release that as an episode as well. Unfortunately, the audio recording for that session has some major issues that we haven't quite had the time to sort out yet. But in order to avoid the same complications for this episode, we recorded our own audio locally and then just repeated the audience questions from the Q&A. Or Morgan repeated them. Yeah, Uh, I repeated them. Anyway, let's get right into the episode. Hello, I guess welcome to this Foss and Crafts related presentation. I'm, as said, Christopher Lemmer Weber, and this is my co-host... Morgan Lemmer Weber. Or I guess co-presenter in this case. Yes, or both. Yes. What's the topic today, Morgan? 
So today we are going to be talking about building blocks for crafting freedom. And that includes building blocks as in actual toys that children play with and learn creatively how to build things, as well as building blocks for software and hardware. So I think also we should say that the we're considering, considering crafting in this case, also including open software, open hardware, and all sorts of free software adjacent things. Programming is another form of crafting, basically, from this perspective. Is that right? Correct. Yes. And so we're going to be talking about the empowerment that you get from having the tools to learn the basics of any skill set today. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean to you? So what's what's empowering about getting a tub of, let's say, Lego-like bricks for you as a kid, right? What's interesting about that kind of um, stackable blocks type thing as opposed to other types of toys? The benefit of a giant tub of Legos or other types of building blocks or building bricks to me is the level of creativity and problem solving that it gives you. I am an art historian and I study art architectural history and I spent a lot of time as a child building structures out of these bricks. And Chris, I believe you played with Legos differently as a child. Yeah, I didn't build structures as much as I built a lot of um, creatures and kind of robot type things and a lot of just kind of miscellaneous uh, experiments. Yeah, that's still a level of creativity that it allowed you. And you could even say that you were building worlds with your Legos, which ties into your current job, correct? Right. Well, the the virtual worlds aspect of Sprightly. One of the things that's interesting there is that the advantage, I think, for children of being able to have access to things that are like building block type things is that it's easy to become empowered enough to do something interesting and creative fast. Right. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is, how does that what does that have to do with free software, free culture and et cetera? Like, you know, where do we move from the building block metaphor over to the free software, free culture, open hardware, et cetera, stance. Well, the link that we are drawing is kind of the increasing level of final product that gives you a final destination as opposed to the individual skills that get you there. So for Legos, for example, there's been an increasing market for sets that You build a specific thing that you're given instructions to build that are usually tied to some sort of intellectual property or licensed branding so that they sell more sets. Like the Star Wars. Yeah, like Star Wars or My Little Pony or something like that. For software, that would be the increasing, like, you get software, but there's no way that you can change it or alter it, which the FOSS movement is a uh, counteraction to. And then for hardware, that would be things such as like Nintendo or the iPhone or something like that, where you have a hardware component that you are not allowed to tinker with at all. Notably, you still can take apart and mess with even something that uh, you can combine your Star Wars and Harry Potter universe Lego type things. But um, I think part of the thing that's being argued for there is that having a tooling that's relatively generic is an incentive for kids to create their own worlds. Actually, let's let's tie that back to um, computer programming fundamentals a little bit further, right? 
I think that there's uh, some aspects to the empowerment uh, part, which are, you know, getting access to tools that also allow you to build interesting and powerful things quickly, right? So I don't have to write my own image rendering code. I can use libpng or libjpeg or whatever like that to handle all that type of information, right? You know, I also, for mo much of the stuff that I'm doing, um, I also don't even have to write my own image editor, right? I can use a GNU image manipulation program or Krita or things like that, right? So these are useful building blocks. Having access to things that I can plug together from libraries is very useful. And also, it's empowering for me to also have access to things that generally mostly work. Um, but I think the interesting aspect about compared to, you know, kind of building block style toys is that I also have the right to kind of take them apart and reconfigure them um, if if it's appropriate to me. Does that does that resonate with you? Yeah. And with hardware, that's not always the case, right? There is open hardware and you can build a computer out of components but if you buy a laptop a lot of times you can change things but there's a limited amount of things that you can change by taking it apart if you buy an iphone and you want to change the battery then you are jailbreaking that iphone and you're breaking your warranty and terms of service by doing so Especially if you're replacing the software or the operating system on the iPhone or on the Nintendo Switch or whatever, right? Yeah. Well, and then there's also this idea that millennials and younger are digital natives, right? We grew up with software and hardware that, you know, we just know how to use. But also there's this increasing level of obscurity as to how things actually work versus just being usable, well, I, so there, I had an interesting conversation with my uh, father, actually, who, um, when I was growing up, he had a Commodore 64, and he was, you know, learning basic and stuff like that to extend the system, and, you know, then eventually got a DOS machine, and then a Windows machine, a series of Windows machines, and now mostly uses this iPad, and he remarked, with every generation of computer, I understood it less, right? He's doing things on each one of the computers, but he doesn't understand with every one of these generations of computers, he's understood how it's worked less, mm -hmm. right? And so this idea of being a quote unquote digital native, you know, it also in some ways feels like it flies in the face of the idea of are you empowered to be able to understand what's going on and be able to change and adjust things if, if appropriate. Mm -hmm. And the amount of things you can do. I mean, your dad is doing digital artwork on his iPad and he can create beautiful things, but there's only a certain amount that he can tweak things if he wants different functionality. But there's also something to being able to get stuff that's in users' hands where they don't have to spend a lot of time learning really low-level fundamentals that they can get up to and, and running and playing with things fast, right? That's part of the appeal of the building blocks metaphor is that you do have something where you're able to build something, you're able to rearrange things, but it's actually the the barrier to entry is fairly low. Mm -hmm. So moving on, um, there's also the issue of who's allowed to make the blocks in all of these various fields. One of the interesting motivators for the moving for Lego moving from uh, these tubs of bricks to this, you know, trying to encourage these uh, deals with, you know, um, uh, copyrighted, trademarked, uh, you know, works, you know, like Harry Potter and Star Wars and stuff like that, is that um, their patents 
expired on the Lego brick, right? And the 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 mechanism by which you'd be able to combine these together. Mm-hmm. And so this was kind of seen as a way for them to continue to have a um, a you know kind of lockdown leg up in combination with the branding that they built for themselves, right? Well, and also they made a design that worked better than other types of blocks too, right? The interconnecting brick design of Legos made it so that you could build a house and it would still be there a week later. Sure, sure. And you could throw that house at your cousin's head and it would still be in a house shape, which may or may not be an anecdote from my childhood. Yeah, so that was a significant advancement. And having specific legal control over... Um, the patents of who's allowed to make these kinds of bricks in this kind of shape wasn't required for them to be able to gain that level of recognition, but it, it did allow them to have, you know, effectively a monopoly for a long time on things. Nowadays, since the patent has expired, it is possible to get third-party bricks that are a lot cheaper, sometimes less well-made, sometimes just as well-made. You know, in looking for and researching this talk, um, because Morgan and I do actually enjoy sometimes sitting down and dumping some Legos out and just building things as a way of passing the time. We found and ordered some interesting blocks. There were some that you were particularly excited about. Uh, Do you want to talk about them? Yeah, so we found a set of masonry blocks. So they're Lego blocks in two colors, a gray. Lego Lego compatible blocks. Sorry, Lego compatible blocks. They're Lego style blocks um, that are in two colors. There's gray and kind of a brick color. And then they've got like masonry lines as if there was mortar. So with these, you can build houses that look like they're made out of masonry. And to this day, when Chris and I sit down to play with Legos, because we are fully functional adults who play with Legos, I build structures and then Chris populates those structures with little creatures. Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is that now it's possible for other people to introduce things into the space. I also remember when 3D printing started to become really well available, that was one of the first things that you started to see people 3D printing was, you know, their own Lego compatible bricks that they were really excited. Haha, I can do this myself. Now, realistically, the amount of effort to 3D print those bricks is not really worth it for the most part if you're not making something that you can't get otherwise, right? Like if you're not making kind of a specialized one-off thing. But I think there was a a certain amount of kind of feeling of liberation of being able to do that type of thing. Well, and also the level of uh, intricacy that you need for a Lego compatible brick, depending on the quality of your 3D printer, is hard to achieve, right? Like Uh... one extra little blob. I don't think it, people were pre printing them back when uh, those things were not that great. I mean, it's true that you did have to kind of file off the kind of knobby bits and stuff like that. It, it's just that, you know, it's a, it's a lot of time and effort to make, you know, that single one brick, right? It's just, um, but I, I also think that, you know, it's it's also the, the quality you get from a 3D printer is not really that high. You have all these jaggedy lines, you know, smoothing it off. You're like rubbing acetone down it or whatever to try to like smooth down the plastic. It's just mostly not worth it. Um, It's a nice way to be able to prototype things. But also if you've got a 3D printer, maybe you're just going to actually 3D model the entire thing you want to build and print the entire thing, right? Why you don't have to actually use those individual bricks, right? Well, it's a separate type of building blocks if you have the ability to 3D model something and then print it with your 3D printer. Right, and that's kind of a more advanced thing, which I think we're going to get to later. Before before we uh, move further from this, 
patents are, I think, a much bigger threat in the software world and to some degree also the hardware world than, um, than they are, I think, as in terms of kind of the toy aspect with, you know, Lego compatible type units, right? Well, I'm pretty sure I could pull up several court cases of toy companies fighting over patents. <laughs> They're probably, uh, well, uh, yeah, over patents in general, and I'm sure probably even over Lego style bricks. Uh, but the, the point for me is that the level of innovation that's being blocked and the level of user freedom that's being blocked is significantly higher in the, you know, patents on software type perspective than the patents on Legos type perspective is what I'd argue. You know, it's a similar thing that once, you know, when when those types of things are not in place, you can actually see a lot more experimentation and a lot more um, ability to uh, mess with things, right? So I don't know. Yeah. And I think that there is probably greater social impact with software and hardware patents than there are with toy patents even though to the people involved they are just as important well yeah i mean the so 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 okay let me throw it at you why is it much more significant because in the modern world in 2021 um the entire world is run off of software and hardware and the world is not run off of lego bricks right that's a great explanation yep (laughs) But so I can 3D print my own Lego compatible pieces if I want to. Or a casing for your Raspberry Pi. Or a casing for my Raspberry Pi or Beagle Bone Black or um, my, you know, Risk High Five board or anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. Why might I not choose to make an entire tub of uh, building blocks? with my 3d printer if i have it you know um what what's it 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 seems that very people might print one or two of these blocks but people don't seem incentivized to print an entire set would your would you have any uh um thinking on why that probably is well it just does not scale that well so many years ago for a crowdfunding campaign for the media goblin project that chris was uh was the founder of and main develop lead developer on we printed little badges as rewards on our 3d printer and i think we printed about 150 of them and with the amount of time investment in printing each of them because the 3d printer we had at the time could only print i think like four at a time so it took a long time to print them initially and then to smooth them out and paint them added more time so it's not easy to make large quantities of things in that way Mm -hmm. so from that perspective this is a a criticism sometimes Mm -hmm. of open hardware because there's a difference in software right we're sharing around information and we're using uh our computers are general enough machines where they can very quickly construct more information from previous information where some of the information is instructive. And so I'm able to take some source code and compile it with relatively little effort on my machine. However, compiling, in air quotes, a laptop Mm -hmm. is a lot more work, right? Um, So I remember having some early conversations with some people at the beginning of, you know, kind of the open hardware stuff where somebody said to me, well, this also means that the open hardware movement is just useless. There's no reason to have open hardware because you can't compile things in the same way. So there, therefore, there's no reason. Uh, what, what are, what's your thinking about that? 
There's also issues with production in that when you're talking about computer components, then you're talking about factories producing these things for the most part, too. You're not just building it within your home. So that criticism to an extent is real in that the cost of creating 500 custom computer chips is going to be much greater per chip than if you were creating, you know, 5 million chips or 5,000 chips. And for many types of electronics, I can't even produce the chips and any equipment I could have at home, right? I have to use some sort of factory. I mean, I can do simulated designs of it on an FPGA or something like that, and I might be able to print out the general circuit board and the a whole bunch of things at home and create all the casing and, and wiring and everything. The MNT Reform is a really interesting example of a laptop that's meant to be as repairable as possible, but still... Um, there's no way to be able to make those individual, like the CPU at home, right? Or the RAM or anything like that. You have to rely on a factory to be able to build that type of stuff. So the gist of that, though, is not that the open hardware movement is pointless. It's just that it is limited based on production constraints. And let's let's say what happens in the absence of the open hardware movement, because I think that that's maybe a really interesting illustration, right? So in the absence of the open hardware movement... Recently, we've been seeing what's, I mean, well, what's the direction of computers, right? Um, it's harder and harder for me to repair almost every single computer I've gotten over time, right? It's harder to be able to swap out the pieces. It's harder for me to be able to, you know, I, ba- I mean, I guess basically ever since the, you know, kind of the open PC design ended up accidentally happening through IBM's PC back in the 80s, it's been relatively easy to be able to swap out and interchange components, and that's become less and less and less the case. Mm-hmm. And right, and more and more devices are along the lines of where they're they're restricting you. And there's a lot of things that are really scary, I think, about the direction. I mean, if you are doing high security stuff and there is a vulnerability in your CPU. And there's no way for you to fix that. Or look at the Intel management engine where there is a backdoor in every computer where, um, in theory, you know, basically a government agency or whatever, or, you know, the manufacturer could log into people's remote machines and stuff like that. That's scary, right? And if people have no ability to participate in that process, that's that's pretty negative, it seems like, right? Yeah. Um, and for that reason, Chris has intentionally bought old hardware in order to prevent some of the security features that are built into some of the more recent technologies, especially with laptops. Yeah, and it's been harder and harder to justify that as computers have moved forward and older computers have not, and it's harder to even get a hold of those old components for older machines even. Mm -hmm. But I have some hope, right? The new work on RISC-V machines, which is an open architecture processor, means that it's becoming increasingly possible to be able to get computers where um, there is community design involved in the design and production of things. And the lower costs on fabrication, right? There are It's increasingly possible where you can say, even to be able to do a 500-unit run of some sort of specialized electronic thing, that wasn't possible quite some time ago. And nowadays, that's increasingly possible to get access to. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might say that there are problematic aspects of that type of production as well. But I mean, look, I, I, you and I also like to play board games, right? 
And in fact, your your mother was involved in board game production for a long time, right? Yeah, my mother ran a board game design and development company. And this problem of scaling and production is eventually what caused that business to close because it was just too expensive for smaller companies that weren't, you know, Milton Bradley to create games. But just within a couple of years after that business closed also, she started looking at things again and the world had changed, right? Nowadays, it's mm-hmm. a completely possible to scale small-scale production of board games, right? Like, this happens all the time. People make, and and you're able to, the amount of tooling available where you can build prototypes of things on your computer um, for the individual pieces, 3D print them, and then go contact some sort of company like Shapeways or whatever and ask them to scale up another production of it. And then eventually you can do injection molding or something like that if it's necessary. Those mm-hmm. types of pipelines were not available when your mom was running her organization. That was just within a few years where that became possible. Yeah. It was probably about five years after my mom's company uh, closed that you started getting the indie games movement and it was the community-driven involvement that led manufacturers to have more access to these things. Well, I think these things go hand in hand, right? Because it's community-driven development. So let's look at 3D printing as an example, right? So you've got Shapeways, mm-hmm. which appears as a company that starts figuring out how to scale up 3D printing things and, and doing things like that. And even non-3D printing things like like metal versions of objects and stuff like that. And that company was a reaction to the availability of community tooling and community production with the emergence of 3D printing. But 3D printing could have happened a long time ago also. The reason 3D printing took a long time to start when the RepRap, which was, you know, the first open hardware 3D printer really kind of brought things on the scene, was because it was patented. 3D printing was patented and it took until the removal of that patent for it to be able to be explored. We're spending a bunch of time on this individual topic, but I think it's worth it. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. So, so okay, moving on. In order to get to the end of our outline. Yeah, that's right. So there's also issues of standards and de facto standards. So I have messed up several times on this talk and used the term Lego instead of interoperable building bricks. Right. <laughs> um, because Lego has just be- become the standard. The de facto standard. The de facto standard, sorry, yes, for the types of building blocks that interconnect with that specific mechanism. Right. Even though there are now off-brand Lego-compatible bricks. And even then, with Lego-compatible, that's, you know, using the de facto standard. Right. And I've been involved in standardization efforts. With ActivityPub, it's a standard, right? It was worked on at a standards organization. But... In reality, a lot of people end up working on trying to conform to what gets rolled out in practice, right? So there's kind of this like cyclical aspect between standards and de facto standards where you have um, kind of development of things and then there's a standardization of things at a more general institution, uh, like LibreOffice developing the open document format and then that being standardized, right? It was open office back in the day when mm-hmm. that happened. And that was kind of at that time, it was a big reaction against the very incredibly loosely defined Microsoft Word document formats, right? Which were very hard to open and just all of these incompatible things. And de facto standards, since they're often tied to 
corporate interests, they often end up decreasing the amount of interoperability that's available. An example would be Photoshop versus the GNU image manipulation program. You cannot open uh, Photoshop files. You can, but it's like there's difficulties in it, right? Like, and, and like it, yeah. it's never it's never really completely compatible. I'm sorry. I guess I'm thinking more about InDesign. You can't open InDesign, Adobe InDesign uh, files with uh, with like Scribus, which is an open source uh, publication preparation thing, because InDesign has things so locked down. Sometimes you can open these things, but they're not. They're like very reverse engineered and very hard to kind of get right. I guess what's interesting about the Lego-like brick phenomenon is that the mechanisms are so simple that building an interoperable version is incredibly easy to do, right? Like building something that's Lego compatible, mm-hmm. it's not hard. You fi- figure out what the width of those things are and what, the, what shapes you put together and, and, and it's, it's not difficult to do at all. Yeah, and our lego compatible masonry bricks that we bought are fully interoperable with the set of lego bricks that we have the only difference looking at them is that the lego ones say lego in relief on top of each of the little points at the top whereas the off-brand ones do not Mm -hmm. so i think we've covered this topic pretty well should we should we move on to the next one yes let's move on so gender coding and marketing of toys. Uh, so you walk into a toy shop and you've got the pastel, especially pink section, and you've got the all the other, especially deeper color section. And they're very strongly delineated for various reasons with color schemes that are relatively modern post the invention of fo- color photography. So what kind of effects? What's the problem with having these uh, these binary divisions of things? So I worked at a toy store for a couple of years there and well, it's out of date now, but 10 years ago, I had a pretty good idea of the available products and the marketing towards uh, boys and girls. And I would hope that in the last 10 years that's progressed. But whenever I've peeked into the toy aisle at uh, the store when we were there, it doesn't seem to have changed that much. And usually the toys that are marketed towards boys are more career oriented so if you're looking if we're looking at blocks and things that are lego like then you have the cars and the buildings and things that are more likely to build into skills that are related to a future career whereas the things that are marketed towards girls are more domestic so the dollhouse versions of buildings and the pets and the 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 families and stuff like that this has very well documented very big impacts that the gendering of things happens so early and young and so having the career gender and the domestic gender creates obvious and serious problems right so uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the lack of women in, you know, you know, kind of STEM type fields, right? And notably, this has gotten worse over time. I guess we could walk into why, but we know that a lot of this starts at a very early age. But even the other direction is a problem, right? There's 
also, you know, been a lot of research about the amount of strain that's happened during the pandemic, where with women being expected both to have careers these days and also do all this type of domestic work, that there is much higher a much larger amount of undue stress put on women, especially women who do want to have careers because men are not taught domestic skills, right? And you you also had some thoughts about empathy that I think you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so when I worked at that toy store, we had a big display of dolls and uh, we had a diverse array of, you know, boy and girl dolls, no non-binary dolls 10 years ago. I don't know if that's a thing. Although all dolls are kind of non-binary. Dolls of different ethnicities and skin tones and stuff like that. And we would oftentimes have either boys who wanted a doll and their parents would not let them have a doll. Or kids who came in and one parent or grandparent would buy the boy who wanted a doll a doll. And then the other parent or grandparent or whatever would storm back in a day or two later and angrily try and return that doll because how dare you get a boy a doll? And the thing is that different types of toys teach kids different types of skills. And those skills are all valid. So worst case scenario, if your boy is playing with a doll, that's going to teach him empathy and how to care for people that doll is not going to turn a boy gay or something like that. Not that that would be a problem. Yeah, not that that would be a problem and nothing can turn you gay. That's just, you know, how -hmm. things are. Whereas toys like the bricks, the building toys, do teach kids analytical thinking and creativity in ways that do develop into marketable skills later in life. And also having the boxed sets that you build a specific thing, and then when you're done with it, your parents have to go out and buy you a different set and spend more money because you already built that thing. They do teach you to follow instructions, but they don't teach you creativity in the same way. So I guess we've had some amount of discussion on this show. I mean, and it might be partly due to my biases about the degree to which I mean, so it is well known that video games are a major incentive for people to learn to program right? And um, there was some book, there was a professor in college, and I'll admit I did not react well when I first heard this because I felt like, oh, well, video games were one of the things that, one of the few things that kept me happy in life as a as a kid when I was dealing with a lot of stress. And the, the, the professor was talking about how there was a noted decrease in women programmers, starting with the generation that started playing various types of video games because video games were primarily male oriented but also incentive an incentive to learn to program right and over time i've been like oh wait actually that makes absolute sense right mm-hmm. you know because myself and all of my friends in high school we all started to learn to program because we were playing games and we wanted to make our own games right and many of you went on to be programmers or engineers of some sort that did make games in some way Or related career paths. Yeah, and sometimes we even didn't make games, but it was just an incentive enough to get started, Yeah, right? So in that sense, toys are very serious, right? Mm -hmm. They have a serious amount of impact. Like, it's very easy to dismiss them. Oh, something's just a quote-unquote toy. Mm -hmm. But we started this out with empowerment, you know, kind of low-friction ways of getting involved in things that are fun lead to more serious things down the road, right? And that's a major theme Mm -hmm. of this show, I think. 
Yeah, and eventually you stop playing with toys and you start learning real skills. But the but the point of having those building blocks, the essential fundamental skills of any skill set is that you eventually graduate beyond the initial tools that you're given, right? If you are building with Legos and then eventually you build with Lego Technics and then eventually you become an architect. Or if you learn to play first on your little toy keyboard and then on an electric keyboard and then eventually you learn to play on a piano. So you always want to graduate up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, so I think that this is also where I think that sometimes in software, there, I guess this is where I sometimes get irritated with design, is I, I think the entry level of the things is really important, but there's sometimes a trend in design to cut people off from being able to participate beyond a certain component. It's like, oh, it's really important to get people in the door, and actually we don't really want our users to go further than kind of getting in the door. And I usually... I want to get in the door and then I want to find out what else I can keep doing, right? And so when I hit technology that stops me from being able to go further than that, I tend to get frustrated and I move to something else. Um, I don't know. Does that reflect any of your thinking and experiences? Yeah. Well, and I think going back to the idea of toys as no big deal, but then also like seriously a big deal eventually is that desire for creativity, the desire to think outside of the picture on the front of the box of whatever toy you have that inspires people then to later when they're playing a video game to want to know how to make a video game or when they are using a piece of software to want to know how they could, you know, customize that software to the things that they want or if they are using a laptop and they decide you know what I really wish I could just build my own computer to my own specifications I think that level of creativity can be fostered in kids in order to lead to more innovation in adults Mm -hmm. well I think that was the crux of our outline Um, I I think we can keep riffing on this, but I guess uh, maybe now is actually timing-wise a good time to open it for questions anyway. Yeah, since we're ending the official part of the presentation, I would just like to thank the organizers of OzerCon for inviting us to speak. And yeah, we open it up to questions. For the ease of editing, Morgan will be repeating the comments and questions from the audience before we reply. The first comment is that it's nice to see our faces as we talk. Well, this talk is recorded, so uh, people can see this talk. And we do have plans in the future, now that I'm done with my dissertation, and I probably have more time to do this, to do a thing that we're calling a hack and craft, where we do virtual sessions, probably on Jitsi or Big Blue Button, and people can bring whatever project they're working on. So if that's a craft project or a hacking project or whatever they're doing and just kind of like hang out and work together and make things together. And then people would get to see our faces if they want to. So the question is, if we're talking about digital natives, how does our definition of what a block is uh, impact our creativity and ability to do that? And that's a good question, because like I said with Chris's dad using the iPad to do digital artwork, he can do more intricate things, especially artwork things, on that iPad than he could do on his Commodore 64. 
but he also knew more of the basic elements of using the Commodore 64. So I guess if your building block is wanting to be able to paint something in a digital format that looks like you're painting it and be able to just use your finger, then the iPad totally fits that building block. And you have transferable skills then, because he was a classically trained painter using, you know, oil paints and acrylics and such, and a lot of those skills can transfer. So if his building blocks were the physical painting skills, then that transfers. So yes, that's a very good point. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? I think that something we kind of didn't drill into too much, but is something I very frequently think about is not knowing in advance what layers you want to be able to drill down into and kind of uh, explore and kind of when you want to pull open the hood of something, right? The level of building block abstraction, you might start out, um, I know quite a lot of people who have contributed to the Blender 3D art suite um, and became programmers. And they initially started out just as users who are making artwork, right? So they didn't start out as people who were in, even necessarily interested in computer programming, but since it made it relatively easy to script Blender, and then they found that there were things that Blender couldn't do, they became incentivized to start contributing at that type of layer, and then they were able to actually contribute to the thing underneath it, right? They didn't realize even necessarily ahead of time that they were going to open the hood and move down a layer of abstraction or build things that are on top of that level of abstraction, you know, no matter how you want to look at it. Mm -hmm. So I... This is part of the reason why, you know, sometimes every now and then you hear people say, well, free and open source software only matters to programmers. It doesn't matter to end users, right? And I think that that's a very packaged world view way of viewing things, right? It's kind of like, um, well, cooking only matters to chefs and cooks. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. You don't need grocery stores because we have so many good restaurants today, right? Well, even if you only eat from restaurants, the world is much healthier if people have at least the option to be able to cook things, right? Where we, we end up in a much healthier place for having that option. And even if I'm not growing the majority of my vegetables and stuff like that, it would be a much worse place if I didn't have the right to be able to grow my vegetables to any degree, even if that's not going to scale to all of my produce needs. I would like to respond to that before we move on to the next question, too, and say that I got into free software, well, I guess two intersecting ways. One, my spouse was a free software developer, and that obviously influenced me. But two, I am an art historian, and I was hired to work on a digital humanities project and found that with digital humanities and the amount of funding available, which is often very constrained... Yes, we could blow our entire budget on proprietary software that just does things. Or we could do more with free software, but it will take a little bit more legwork to build the skills in order to do it. But then you have those skills. So for that digital humanities project, I learned how to program in Python and use HTML and CSS. And now I know those skills. Well, I mean, I know those skills. You always build on skills. So there are a lot of different ways to get into free software, and I think one of the major things if you want people who are not just free software developers to get into the field is if you are building free software or open source projects is to invest in UI and UX testing so that people who are not coders can use it and make it more relevant. So to repeat the question, 
buying old hardware is one way to end route around more recent kind of like locked down hardware that doesn't allow for modification, but there's obviously a finite amount of old hardware out there and eventually that hardware will break down and you won't be able to get more. So what do you do when that happens? Yeah, so I completely agree with that criticism, 100%. I've seen that kind of stuff as kind of a stopgap measure, right? It's important. I, I think that having people working and using older hardware it at least kind of pushes the needle a little bit, right? As in terms of like, okay, people are taking something seriously. They're trying to figure out what they can do. And that's also a way to learn skills and start building other things, right? But I think that in order to really get to a better direction, this is why open hardware I think is so important. Having the ability to, you know, have like stuff like RISC-V chips and stuff like that where there is a certain amount of community involvement for building new and interesting hardware. That's really important. And y even if, you know, again, I'm not printing that chip at home, a world in which, you know, competition in that area is possible, the ability to audit and be able to contribute. Um, recently, there was a project on Hackaday where a kid built a RISC-V computer that ran at like half a megahertz out of like individual discrete parts that you could get you know it was not you know an integrated chip but you know there's no way you could use that for anything serious but it's at least useful you know that kid's gonna have skills for the rest of it um his life and also you know the even the process of doing that type of thing it really helps learn and advance things, right? It opens conversations, it opens up experimentation. Um, and so, um, yeah, I just, I, I agree. Op old hardware is not a sustainable direction. And I think it's very easy for free and open source software people, including, and especially myself, to get locked into old things that we have, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that we have to be ready to continuously experiment and move forward and also Part of the reason why I was excited to do this podcast with Morgan about, you know, FOSS and crafts is that sometimes, and this is true with my own research, finding the right solutions also sometimes means moving into the past, right? A lot of the research I'm doing on Sprightly has been pulling from research that is, you know, two or three decades old that was just been sitting on the shelf, right? And Morgan, a lot of your work is about stuff that's much older. So my stuff is about stuff that's literally been sitting on shelves for decades that before that was buried in the earth for millennia centuries yeah centuries or millennia sometimes yeah and but the techniques are often very much older so you're you mm -hmm. only have i think one article of clothing that you completely constructed from literally from the wool right off the animal right i only have one garment of clothing that i spun the thread and then knit it <laughs> and stuff like that but even then i didn't shear the sheep and i didn't dye the wool myself and those are all much older techniques but imagine a world in which people are not allowed to know how to participate in or advance the state of clothing at whatever layer of abstraction is interesting or relevant to them right that would be a much mm -hmm. worse world i think so the question is for Foss and Crafts, how did we realize that all of our interests kind of have a commonality in the idea of freedom? And that happened on a walk <laughs> that Chris and I were taking. 
And we were talking about doing this actually as a user group first, and we just kind of like threw out ideas. And it was in you know at the beginning of the pandemic and having a user group that was decentralized and online entirely was appealing because you know we couldn't see people in person at that point and we just kind of like started throwing out ideas about the things we're interested in and then we went home for lunch (laughs) and we pulled out some index cards and pens because everything in our house runs on index cards pens and binder clips aside from computers and we said well how many ideas do we actually have is this sustainable as a podcast right and so we started sketching it and i think within about mm, 20 minutes we had about 50 podcast topics written down we filled two of these index cards with like two columns on each thing yeah front to back with ideas and so we said okay there's no lack of materials but also morgan and i are both interdisciplinary people i mean my Mm -hmm. my my undergraduate degree is literally interdisciplinary humanities because i couldn't make up my mind and i like the intersection of things but but morgan's stuff is also very interdisciplinary right so i'm not a computer Mm -hmm. programmer by training i thought i was going to be a writer and an artist to pay for my programming and then you know that pay for your free software programming because you right you you are far too principled to work for a uh proprietary software company (laughs) Which is which is a certain amount of privilege, right? Yeah. But you know, you're in and similarly, Morgan's digital humanities stuff, you also have done crossover there and all of your research has been interdisciplinary. So the idea of things being interdisciplinary and exploring a bunch of cross topics, I think is not a shocking idea for Morgan and myself at least. Nestle Hunt has just informed us that we are out of time and thanked us for our presentation. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you again for organizing the conference and inviting us. Yes, wonderful work. Thank you. All right, take care. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC01.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community in hash fossingcrafts at irc.libera.chat. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Do you mind if I respond to this one since I'm oh, yeah. the one who's bought the most old hardware? Uh, that was my uh, plan. I just didn't household. think you were going to repeat the question. <laughs> no, I my, my short-term memory is not very good, as you know. <laughs> <laughs>